KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program, a show all about housing, politics, and ideology. In the program, we are talking about a book with the author of that book. The book is Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspired to Segregate Housing and Divide America, out by Haiti Books. The author is Gene Slater. In this book, it's a really interesting history about many topics uh, near and dear to this show. It is about realtors and their devious machinations. It is about the history of modern housing development, the history of home ownership, and importantly, the history of discrimination, ideology, modern freedom, the modern right wing, the modern left, centered around the 1964 Anti-Fair Housing Constitutional Initiative, Proposition 14. But we're better off talking with the author uh, himself to uh, learn more about what's uh, what's in here. So uh, without further ado, let's uh, let's get to it. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Gene, for uh, for making it here. Sure. Yeah, yeah. The book is Freedom to Discriminate. It's out on Heyday. Uh, it is a new book, extremely interesting book. Uh, it's about realtors. It's about the history of the realting uh, profession, uh, a history of the ideas of realtors. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think, uh, it, it really uncovers a lot of history I wasn't really, uh, familiar with, but, uh, yeah, before we kind of get into it, just, you know, why, why this book about this topic? Um, I think for me, there, there were a couple of reasons that led me to doing this. One was I've spent the last 45 years in affordable housing financing around the country as an advisor to state and local and sometimes federal agencies from, looking at every abandoned building in the South Bronx in 1970 to uh, working on a home improvement program for Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that fixed up 18,000 of the 72,000 single family homes and working on modernized public housing and mixed income housing and so all aspects of affordable housing. One of the things I realized was that day to day, part of what people working in affordable housing are doing around the country and cities in general are overcoming the long-term effects of uh, past racial segregation and dealing with those. And yet there's very little people are aware of, of how this actually happened. The leaders of state housing finance agencies, many of them members of minorities, as I talked about what I was learning, this wasn't something they knew how this had occurred. Um, that was one thing. And the second was I was doing actually a master's in liberal arts at Stanford. Um, and in a graduate human rights seminar, the question occurred to me, why is it that on issue after issue, anything involving civil rights, conservatives argue that extending or protecting civil rights is in fact limit a violation or limitation on American freedom, on individual freedom? Where did this come from? And it turns out these two histories are intertwined, that it was the realtors who both created residential segregation in this country was invented like the airplane. And to defend it, they went through a series of defenses to deal with America's changing values. But their ultimate defense became a, a language of individual freedom of choice that has really shaped American politics ever since. Um, so it's a, that dual focus that interested me. Yeah, I, I think this it has a, the, the signs of, of, of a great history insofar as as you read through it, you see institutions that evolve, and they aren't just kind of snapshots of something you see and you move on, but 
it is in a place you see where they're coming from, where they're going to, why they evolve for different reasons. And I think you basically start at the birth of the modern real estate profession uh, just about 120 years ago. And I think it's striking at this point how weird and different it is. Uh, I mean, for one thing, uh, we take it, I think everyone has a kind of, like they look around and what seems natural right now, it seems perpetual. You know, uh, residential segregation. Everyone says, oh, this is a natural phenomenon, but it simply was not the case 120 years ago. Right. So if you go back to America in the beginning of the 1900s, cities were not residentially segregated. There weren't separate all-white neighborhoods. People basically lived according to where they could afford, not their ancestry. Poor people lived in poor you know, areas of the city with lower-priced housing, although that was often mixed, um, even in types of housing because there wasn't zoning at the time. Um, but people lived according to what they could afford, not to their ancestry. So if you go to like border cities around the country where there was lots of data later on, uh, Baltimore, Louisville, Washington, St. Louis, you find hundreds of blocks that were racially mixed, 40% black, 60% white, or vice versa. You go to southern cities at the time um, in South Carolina, and you know where blacks lived was a block away or on the same block as where whites lived. You go to Los Angeles, um, the booming city, the fastest growing city in the country for the first half of the 20th century. And in 1904, a uh, black real estate broker talks about how proud African-Americans are for not having chosen to segregate themselves, but living in many of the best neighborhoods with the best infrastructure and best services. And yet you come back 13 years later, I mean, like a quarter of somebody's career, I mean, not a long time. Yeah. And, and here's an African-American in the same city in Los Angeles saying, we've been encircled by invisible walls. The whites have surrounded us and prevented us from moving around those walls. Something dramatic had changed. So in later years, people have assumed, and the realtors, having organized residential segregation and defended it, said, well, this is natural. Birds of a feather flock together. It's just people. It wasn't the case. So this wasn't a matter of people couldn't afford. In fact, minorities, as a result of segregation, had to pay more money, often 20 to 30% more for the same quality housing. It wasn't a question of preference. Just like with all immigrant groups, people coming to cities lived in mixed areas and moved out as soon as they could. So it wasn't natural. It wasn't normal. It wasn't historical. It was an invention. Yeah. I mean, this, this, I mean, as far as like other urban histories, I mean, uh, Cincinnati is, you know, my hometown and, you know, you say things, everyone was in the slums of the basin, you know, it was, it was a mixture of, of, of places. California, which is what this book focuses on is perhaps a bit different insofar as the great migration patterns didn't happen as early in the same time. It really, like, you know, Los Angeles in the early 20th century was used, uh, like 98% white in, in many places, as I think is a figure in here. Or maybe uh, 96%, maybe 2% yeah. Japanese and about 2% African-American. Yeah. Sure. And, like, uh, and, I mean, at that time, it, and there wasn't really the same paranoia about you know race mixing in, in residential areas but then on top of this too it isn't just kind of this you know, segregation there is this prehistory of how realtors came to be and uh, this is the primordial real estate broker world and it's a, it's a very funny world of just just endless con men and everything and yeah uh, 
And I think this is an interesting point, too, because at this turning point in history, it was the age in which suburbs kind of turned on to a larger degree. Streetcars became real. This is right at the bleeding edge of automobiles. And a big question is, well, how do you facilitate this? You know, and the early ages of subdivisions put here are fascinating insofar as like we expect a certain amount of competence and kind of, you know, what to expect. And I think you put yourself in this world, you go out to a subdivision people might want to be, and there is just all these people uh, speculating on weird plots and people setting up tents, half-built buildings. And like, and, uh, and I think one takeaway is, well, I mean, we don't see that today. What's the reason? Uh, but the real estate brokers certainly said, like, this isn't good for business. And they essentially not only were the salesmen we know today, but they effectively were holistically responsible for the development of our cities, especially in you know early 20th century sprawl. I mean, the Home Builders Association was part of okay. the real estate boards at this point. Yes. So let me, let me take that apart with different pieces. So one was just how real estate was sold in general. There wasn't any licensing. There were no qualifications you needed to be to say you were a real estate broker. Many people did this part-time. If they knew somebody who was interested in buying and somebody who was interested in selling, they would be a middleman. They'd sort of try and work out a commission. Commissions often weren't written. Um, and until the sale closed, anybody else could come in and say, well, I'll, I'll do the same sale with the same guy for less money. And uh, real estate salesmen uh, worked you know, on downtown streets of Los Angeles and many other cities, effectively like streetwalkers. They'd come up to you and say, you're interested in a lot for sale. Um, everything was extremely informal, unbelievably competitive. And here's a quote from uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, says, if a man under a cloud or down and out cannot go into the local, into the real estate business, where in God's name can he go? That was the reputation of real estate. Real estate men were known as scoundrels, as con men, um, as shysters. I mean, that was sort of the norm uh, to be perceived that way. So it's a totally unregulated field, a field that I'll point out that where the commodity that was in short supply at the beginning of the 1900s in real estate wasn't freedom, as the realtors later would use in their arguments to defend segregation. It was trust. Mm. It was certainty. It was stability. And so the early real estate boards were formed, as in Los Angeles, by a group of the largest, most established, most socially prominent real estate brokers in Los Angeles, like 30 or 40 of those out of 2,000 brokers who were working in Los Angeles, assembled and put together a real estate board that would regulate themselves, that would push for state licensing to drive out the con men and to drive out the frauds but even more important to try and dominate the business by their own rules by saying, because we're members of the local real estate board, you can trust us. They then trademarked uh, this name as realtors. Um, they set up all these rules. They were very socially exclusive original, I mean, all white as they remained for the next 60 years, but of only people they personally felt comfortable with who they sort of recruited in. And in effect, they operated as private clubs and they saw this exclusiveness as part of their power, only like-minded men committed to the same values could work together. So that created a power structure. And as you say, they organized the entire real estate industry 
they they created what became the appraisal institute, what became the home builders, what became the uh, real estate property management association, what became real estate education. They were the organized force, sort of like the chamber of commerce for real estate, and they met in the offices of the chamber of commerce. And it was only by the creation of such a powerful force, which using the multiple listing service that they invented, where any member, basically who had a listing automatically provided a copy of that to every other member of the board. So like members of a stock exchange. And it said anybody else, any other member of the board will get half the total commission if you find a buyer for it. So this created this cooperative network that soon dominated real estate sales, came to control 80% roughly of residential sales in California and in the country, and enabled the members of these real estate boards, remember this tiny minority of brokers, to double commissions and get exclusive commissions to go from two and a half or 3% to five or 6% and make that stick. So all real estate brokers sort of adopted it. It took this power in order to maintain segregation, which requires racially limiting this America's rambunctious free market. And to say only certain people with certain, you know, from certain races can buy a house. It took that kind of power to achieve that. Yeah, it's fat. I mean, this this whole book, in a certain way, can be looked at like a real life conspiracy. It is, you know, it is a cabal of, of brokers. You mentioned eighty percent of sales, but they were far less as far as a percentage of brokers. And even after licensure, you might have expected that they create licensure, then only their gang gets in. But actually, it's kind of brilliant insofar as they are only the elite of that. Yes. But because of their essentially the control, the natural monopoly of information, and just kind of having the right ends, they effectively control the entirety of of the business, even without, I guess, a de jour uh, specification. Right. Well, part of it becomes, you know, the multiple listing service. Part also becomes their political power as an organized force. So to get state licensing, after they create the LA, Los Angeles Real Estate Board in 1903, they go up and down the state to try and create similar boards to push for state licensing in San Francisco and Berkeley, Sacramento. And within two years, set up a statewide association and a couple of years later, a national association. And one of the first acts of the president of the first California Real Estate Association, he writes a letter to the newly elected governor. He said, they've just created this organization and they put the governor on notice and say, we have a political power that's unmatched in the state. Because we're in every assembly district and every senate district in the state, and we can organize the property owners, the vested interests, basically, in that district. So it's an incredibly powerful organization. And so C.C. Young becomes a a realtor out of uh, Mason McDuffie, which we're going to talk a lot about. Um, He becomes Speaker of the State Assembly and then lieutenant governor and governor of California, two realtors are elected as governors. They're seen as sort of this, now that they've changed their reputation from being con men to being these stable citizens associated with leading property owners and the banks and title companies, they now become in many ways the vested establishment in California. It's it's the era of good government in a way. You know, all these cities are turning from the machine you know, hacks to the good government types. And I mean, these are the ideal form of good governments. They're busy buddy Puritan types who want to control all the parts of their cities. 
and it you know and really they it was one of the most successful political gambits you know and, and shaped the entire 20th century yeah it's important to recognize who they were politically in the politics of the time so they saw themselves as members of the progressive movement very different from progressives today this was progressives were associated with teddy roosevelt and the idea they were reformers and they saw what they were doing as reforming real estate and reforming cities, um, both real estate licensing. They were the ones who proposed the first zoning rules in the United States, starting in Los Angeles, proposal in 1905 and got adopted in 1908, the first single family zoning in Berkeley in 1916, creating city planning in the United States. So they were subdivision regulations. So all these, they were organizers. And they saw themselves as reformers. They were almost to a man progressive Republicans who were reform minded. And they saw, you know, reform and profit went hand in hand, that they saw themselves as operating in the long term best interest of society. And that would benefit them, which made them as this narrow exclusive group, of course, what they viewed as the interests of society were, of course, identical with their own interests. Um, but they acted as spokesmen for the public interest from this narrow perception, which had a lot to do with their ability to create segregation. Yeah, and I think this is this is an interesting you know, distinction. It's did the real estate industry, did they speak to a demand for segregated developments or did they create this demand? And I, I, I believe it is basically asserted they created the demand. Uh, I mean, I think... Well, it wasn't something that... It, it wasn't a product that existed. Right. Yeah. Nobody, nobody could go into a neighborhood and buy a home and know that the only other people around them would be white. Yeah. Um, there wasn't, that wasn't the way the market operated. Anybody was going to sell to whoever would give them the best price. If that was a minority, it was a minority, it was a white, it was a white. And so you had no control over what happened next to you. No, there was no zoning as to what physically could get built and there was no race restrictions. So this was a, a truly free market in that sense. And it was precisely to solve the problems of control in that market, of control of what would happen with respect to the neighbors that led to the creation of segregation. Yeah, I think when you're speaking of a time in which there were, you know, high 90 percent, you know, Caucasian people, it wasn't the same paranoia, certainly in the early days, as you get. I think right now it is uh, a latent, you know, kind of the, the, the way race is figuring our cities it's a proxy for you know uh, poverty for poor education for it's just all sorts of things that like oh that's not this is no place to raise a uh, child in this i mean i think it's an interesting it's almost like this extra bonus they give insofar as like the subdivisions just being a mess yes. if you create a subdivision which is not a complete ramshackle slum it's like well that's pretty fancy and then on top of it, it's like, oh, we'll give you, we have a lot of bells and whistles. It's all Caucasian. Sure. That's like, that's like, you know, end of the list. It's, but it's still like, they'll throw it in. So let's describe how this happened. And this is in the Bay Area, actually. In many ways, the first racially restricted neighborhood in the United States was a mile from the UC Berkeley campus. Not in the South. It was here in the Bay Area. Um, how did this happen? So at the time, as we said, subdivisions and development were very, you know, somebody would go, they buy a potato field or a piece of land, they go to the recorder of deeds, they create paper streets, and they put little markings, and they try and sell them. 
I mean, that was the way many subdivisions were done with lots all over. And uh, I love the story in Los Angeles in this era, um, there would be wagons that would be set up downtown to take you out to a subdivision offering free picnics and beer and so forth to sell you a lot. And a couple of these early members, prominent members of these real estate boards, one in Berkeley um, named Duncan McDuffie and another in Kansas City, J.C. Nichols, um, sort of young dynamos, decided they were going to create a different kind of subdivision. So let me tell you a little about McDuffie. And if you if you drive around the Bay Area and see open home sales today, you'll see the signs for his firm, Mason McDuffie. Hmm. It's still around. And it became the most successful real estate developer in the Bay Area. So McDuffie was an ardent environmentalist, a six foot four guy who would spend six weeks hiking in the Sierras. Um, he became the national president of the Sierra Club, served two terms in that role. Um, created the Save the Redwoods League, behaving head of the California Park System, a very powerful guy. And as part of his environmentalism, he saw connecting that to how subdivisions were built. So he was building the area that now is where the Claremont Hotel is, the Claremont Hill area. Right on the border of Berkeley and Oakland. Yeah. Yeah. So in in doing that, he was going to create a different kind of subdivision. He was going to create curved streets, retaining all the trees, requiring houses be set back from the lots, a very different kind of development. Garden City inspired. Yeah, uh, yeah a, the notion was, in effect, it's like a park-like setting for your home. Sure. So that you're members of like a special country club, in effect. So this was going to be the highest end subdivision in the Bay Area. He later sort of replicated many of the same techniques a few years later when St. Francis would in San Francisco. So if you picture either of those places... Um, and, that, and that was considered like these were the highest quality subdivisions on the West Coast. But to control, to buy up this much land, to control all this land, to put in all the infrastructure and all the streets, it's going to take years to make back that investment. This isn't just like going to the recorder of deeds and, you know, uh, you know drawing a map. So it's going to take years to sell all those lots and to make back the cost and to make a profit. So it's the sale of the later lots five years from now, seven years from now where really is going to determine the profitability. But this is an era before zoning. So when you sell the first lot in that development, somebody can build anything there, right? Unless you impose some other kind of rules. So somebody can build an apartment house, somebody can build a tannery, somebody can build an industrial plant, uh, a brothel, whatever, a bar. And the idea had come along starting about 10 years before in a subdivision outside Baltimore called Roland Park where developers used the Olmsted brothers, who McDuffie consulted as well. These were the you know, firm that created Central Park um, as landscape architects and decided to create what were called covenants, deed restrictions that every owner who bought a lot would sign. And it would say, and the, this series of these were pretty standard uh, at this point, which is the house has to be built within a certain number of years. It has to be a certain minimum size, it has to be a certain minimum cost, you have to set back from the street and you have to keep the trees, those kinds of rules. McDuffie added one more to those rules. And that rule was no subsequent buyer or occupant could be a non-Caucasian, except for a servant, servants were allowed to mm. cook. And this cost the developer nothing and why was this created? If you think about the Bay Area at the time, 
very few Japanese Americans or African Americans hardly likely to buy the most expensive house lots in the entire Bay Area. So what this was about was a form of social cachet. It was saying the the houses here are going to be sold to people like you, whose ch your children are going to play with children like you. And Caucasian meant not merely not African American or Japanese or Asian. It also meant not Jews. It meant typically in most places not Italians, not Catholics. It was a it was a form of social class distinction that he was creating. You know, originally when they started trying to sell lots this way, buyers would say, "Well, I don't understand." I'm an American, I'm buying a piece of land, it's my land, and yet you're telling me I can't, you know, you're limiting what I can do with it. And McDuffie's and Nichols in Kansas City salesmen learned to say, you know, it's not the restrictions on you which matter, it's the restrictions on your neighbors which count. What you're buying is protection from what your neighbors might do. So it was a system that both promoted fear of what the neighbors would do and created a tool to do it. The first homeowners associations in America, we now take homeowners associations for granted. It's an institution that got created. It was created in order to monitor and administer these covenants, including this racial covenant. So this is how it started as a, as a marketing tool, a solution to a land development problem, not as part of some grandiose plan, we're gonna segregate all the cities of America. And here now gets the question of, you know, sort of demand for this. So no, there was no pre-existing demand for such a product because it didn't exist. But think of it like the airplane or think of it like the automobile that was being, you know, created and spread in the same era. Here was a product which said to people, you will always be surrounded by people like you. It's a new way of marketing homes. And so within a year, you have high-end developers in Los Angeles, in Beverly Hills, in Bel Air, creating these same sets of restrictions, including the race restrictions. And within a year, Culver City, uh, created by Harry Culver out of Barley Fields, he creates Culver City as a middle-class subdivision with these same rules. And then again, within another year or so, this same thing trickles down to working-class subdivisions. These don't have street tree requirements. They don't have building requirements. They don't have any of those things. All they have is the race restriction itself. You Here's a protection to the working man. And in fact, you may not be a fancy country club, but you know it'll be exclusive and it gives you the right to exclude others. This becomes the norm. And uh, by 1913, the Los Angeles Housing Commission, actually an ancestor of one of my clients, we now work for the Los Angeles Housing Department, says in a report, it would be possible or relatively easy for Mexican-Americans to find homes in Los Angeles if there weren't these racial covenants sprouting everywhere through the city. Yeah, it was like 95% of the land was covered by this before too long? Like um, I don't know if it was that much, uh, effectively. By the 1920s, I think probably 90% of, over 90% of new homes okay. and half of existing homes. But it, the existing homes is important because it wasn't merely the realtors who were doing new development. But by around 1910, realtors who were working in selling existing homes and existing neighborhoods, you know, not a, you know, people are already living there, they decide to take this same marketing tool. And so they go around, they raise money from local banks, Bank of America it's in Pasadena, um, four or five other banks. And they go around circulating petitions among homeowners that say, 
when 75% of the people sign it, covenants will go into springing effect. So for the next 30 years or whatever, if your neighbor sells their house or rents their house to a minority, you can sue to have that person evicted. Yeah. And that's it's this combination of new construction and existing development. And then realtors work hand in hand with local officials to create entirely new cities, Glendale, where basically the city makes clear that if you're a developer and you want to create a subdivision, you have to have racial covenants or it won't get approved. The result is there's one African-American property owner in Glendale. Yeah. So you, that's how you created all white suburbs and the fragmentation of American cities, people living now in separate cities with separate property taxes, fiscal zoning, all the things we now deal with, the difficulties of overcoming zoning issues and fragmentation, metropolitan sprawl, are a result of creating these separate cities precisely to control their own land uses in order to prevent minorities from moving there. And, and because we all like cities are inter- interconnected. So when you have less left over from minorities, overcrowding, paying a premium just to live there, you know, it you don't get anything without any real kind of consequence in that matter. Right. Like any restricted market, the people who are excluded from what are now the vast majority of new homes being built, they're forced to pay higher prices yeah. um, for, or rents for the same quality housing. And that, that's the inevitable result of doing this. After a while, it becomes taking, in the first McDuffie's selling homes, he wound up selling homes for 100,000 Bay Area residents with these restrictions. Gets an award from the mayor of Berkeley for his, you know, for having done this and for a, an honorary degree from the University of California at Berkeley um, for this. Yeah. So at this point, I mean, there's a bunch of threads throughout here. You, know, you see the rise of the realtors. At the same point, uh, it's kind of this whole question about government capacity versus private capacity how do they intersect what can they do and how even in the early days you you say that the realtors like i'm not actually sure that you can you know that these covenants are kosher at all like this seems a little bit suspicious but we at least can pitch it can't hurt uh but you know because you said earlier like you know the american right to property is sacrosanct you know but how how do you how do you square the right to do stuff with these restrictions, and we we see over decades and decades how they interact, and some really weird stuff happens. And like I think it's like in 1917, as far back as that, I, they say racial zoning you can't do that. Racial covenants stay in place, but even fairly early, you know, it's like oh, of course, property is sacred, so you can be an owner, but you can't live in it. <laughs> you know, it's, that's a yeah. weird thing. So, so let me walk through that a little. So. Here are two different, th- two different systems, both created by realtors. One is zoning, starting with youth zoning in Los Angeles, uh, uh, 1905, 1908, in which it basically says you can't have industry or commerce in a residential, in a high-end residential district. And it's part of the principle behind this is what the realtors call the law of conformity. That stability in real estate, in their view, this is part of their being progressives. They're believers in stability, progress, or part of stability, in their view, is social order and social hierarchy. And so they create zoning in this model. Zoning wasn't originally for every part of the city. It just was to protect higher-end residential areas. So this is limiting properties. This is far from freedom. This is their believers in regulation. 
uh, one of their ditties, uh, the realtors go in their national magazines, who put the, who put the state in real estate? Realtors. Um, so they're strong advocates of government regulation. Then alongside that, so here's zoning, controlling what can get built. And here are these racial covenants that they've created. And let me give a little background on the, the legality of these. So there had been an effort, uh, now we go back 30 years earlier, rewind the clock, there had been an effort in California's constitution telling cities they could and in fact should, this is 1870, um, kick Chinese Americans, Chinese, out of cities. San Francisco's Board of Supervisors passes a, an ordinance requiring Chinese to move out to, you know, some area with, uh, you know, pollution and stuff at the edge of the city within 60 days. And they hire lawyers who go to court and says, this violates the 14th Amendment, which says government can't, you know, make decisions based on race. One of these covenants an early version, a sort of mini version of this whole idea gets tried in 1890 in Ventura County, where somebody says of a covenant you can't sell or rent to a Chinese. And the federal U.S. Court of Appeals says that violates the 14th Amendment. Well, so when realtors start imposing these same covenants more broadly across all neighborhoods and stuff, 20 years later, it's a little unclear what the courts are going to do. But in the court, in a case financed by the realtors and Los Angeles Board of Realtors in 1919, California Supreme Court says just what you said. This is a case, by the way, in which people didn't even provide briefs. There was no briefs by the uh, uh, the African American who had bought this home. And the court says, well, it's clear, you know, this is just pr a private matter. And yes, we can't restrict who can buy a house because that would be limiting property rights. But we can certainly restrict who can occupy a house. This sure. is a private contract. They leave out the fact that this is being enforced by the courts. This would turn out to be the key issue 30 years later. So here's this rule that you could buy a house, but you can't live in it. And you could be kicked out of it at any time. Um, and that's the chilling effect. When I talked about these invisible walls, that's what the invisible walls were made out of. But the Supreme Court in 1917 says you can't use zoning. Zoning is an official government action. You can't have realtors around the country try to create, because from their point of view, it's a headache enforcing these rules. Can't we just have the government do it? But the Supreme Court said, no, that would violate the 14th Amendment. So you wind up with this system where this elaborate, private, highly organized system um, spreads over the country because it's, quote, private contracts rather than officially what the government does. But these interact a lot. Yeah, I mean, and we get back to this you know, later, just what can state capacity do to enforce private actors? It's very interesting about like, what is actually the power of the state and when are people okay that when it isn't. But to go back to just the progression of the real estate uh, industry, you know, we're, we're heading into the 20s and 30s and, and, and so on. And you know, at this point, it is growing. It is now a science, and you know, it is a science of, you know, uh, not decreasing property values. So, where does this come from? So, think of again what you, you know, what I tried to do in writing this book is, in effect, put yourselves. I don't mean morally, but put oneself in the shoes of realtors, knowing what they knew then, and the information available, the problem they were solving. If you want to understand what they did, yeah. The method um, 
David Herbert Donald used in his uh, biography of Lincoln, where the information he used was what did Lincoln have in his, you know, on his desk at the time. So take the same approach to a very different group, America's realtors, and understand the problem they faced. They were now seen as the people to turn to to maintain a system which was premised on the idea that if a minority move, the whole idea of covenants was if one minority moved into area, it would ruin the neighborhood. So they now, again, they're only a small minority of all brokers, and people don't have to use a, a broker at all to sell a home. So how do they enforce such a system, right, which requires everybody agreeing to maintain this? And they had no real justification for such a system. as a meeting of high-end developers, with Nichols and uh, McDuffie, um, 1917, in which Nichols is, says to the other guys from Dallas and from the developer of Forest Hills, New York, Chicago, says, you know, I've been approached by some of the best Jewish families in Kansas City saying, why can't I buy a home in country club estates? You know, the nicest subdivision in Kansas City. And he says, you know, by George, it seems so undemocratic, so un-American, you know, so arbitrary that we've created these rules. Of course, the other developers say, more or less, are you crazy? You know, and and Nichols backs off and he has to, and for the next 30 years, he excludes Jews and Catholics as well as African-Americans from his subdivision. But it highlights if the inventors of the system itself are saying, how do we justify this? This is a problem. Yeah. You're trying to enforce it. And so their solution becomes to create a scientific sounding axiom that sounds objective, pure economics, which says that if a minority moves into an all white neighborhood, property values are gonna go down dramatically. And they get, they, the, it's the real estate, in, it's the real estate, National Real Estate Association that sponsors all the real estate textbooks in the country and real estate education at 165, 165 universities. And every appraisal manual and every real estate textbook and land economics textbook in the country all publishes this. And they say, this is a scientific fact that will reduce values by 50% or 30% or whatever. And it's unfortunate for African-Americans, but they just have to sacrifice themselves and their families and their children and their grandchildren's future because inevitably by their very presence, they destroy property values for others. And this is said as a way of saying that realtors are without prejudice. Sure. So the Portland Real Estate Board in 1920, uh, you know, says, not on account of any prejudice, for we have none, but on account of the impact on the public mind on real estate values, we will not sell to any minority. And we will kick out of our board, which remember controls almost all real estate sales. So we'll destroy the career of anybody who violates this rule. And the National Association puts this as it's called Article 34 of their code of ethics they adopt in 1924, that for the first time they now enforce their code on every local real estate board in the country. So it's uniform. It says any, any member who sells to somebody who's going to lower property values in a neighborhood will be kicked out. Now think about this. Real estate brokers, they're fid and under state law and silencing, they're fiduciaries. Their obligation is to get the best price for the seller or the lowest price for the buyer. Here they are. They're violating both of these. They're making certain that certain sales can't become. They've become anti-sales. Yeah. And this, and so they use this doctrine. Now, of course, it's full of, it's full of unbelievable racism 
at the actual operational level. Here is science. So there's a at Stanford's uh, the Hoover Institute. There's this archive from a Stanford uh, professor who did a survey of real estate boards in California, um, confidential survey of every real estate board in California saying with little boxes check, how do you deal with Chinese, Mexicans, uh, African-Americans, uh, Japanese? And the boards then give their answers. We've created what one of them calls a meat ax committee to prevent any such sales. You know, we terminate leases, we buy out properties, basically whatever it takes. And who was excluded? It wasn't only those four groups. Different boards, Santa Monica says, well, we're concerned about French, we're concerned about Latins, we're concerned about Armenian, or we're Jews or Italians, whatever it is. This is a way, who decides is the people who are selling the homes, the local real estate board, and who's the expert on real estate values? The real estate board. So who can who can question? It's it's at the same time like they they go to real land economists. I mean, it's actually in the in the a uh, lot of people may have access to with Richard Eli, but in this case, like he actually uh, he he did have data to show like you know this isn't really established by what well, Eli study. It's interesting. I'm glad you cite that. Yeah. Eli was like the most prominent land economist in the country. And Eli was hired, the, real, the National Realtor Executive Director, uh, Herbert Nelson, brought in Eli and his students, who later became incredibly important in the story and basically ran the Federal Housing Administration, to do land economic studies. He, I don't think he was specifically asked on this question. And he does studies, and they don't show what the realtors want. So he only publishes the studies that they want. He yeah. sort of has learned. And so everybody who's writing a textbook and every land economist knows if you're going to write it, it has to fit into the mode that the real estate industry is sponsoring all this is in favor of. It's, it's an interesting question here. As this evolves in the early history, it makes a, like, a lot of sense. It is a story of like penny ante kind of you know, land brokers you know, realizing a bigger score. If you show some diligence, you can actually kind of grow... Uh, your speculation to a higher degree make a lot more money but like within a few decades you can see like they are either being short-termist or they're leaving money on the table even to propagate is like is the racial hierarchy the fundamental core is it institutional this is the way we do it here is the core it's interesting growth of institutions and what actually drives it so let's think about it from the point of view of an individual broker and their financial. And, and one of the things they would say is, look, look how noble we are. We're sacrificing closing a deal and making a commission by selling to an iron, maybe at a higher price and making even more money and getting that deal done. We're noble. We don't go for the gold. In fact, as part of, at the same time they adopted this code of ethics to kick out any member who would sell to an iron or white neighborhood, they made the golden rule an essential part of their, they based their whole code of ethics on the golden rule. Because the golden rule is, as they understood it, meant you wouldn't, you know, as they're all white, you wouldn't want to have a Negro being located next to you. So are you going to not do, you know, look out for the interest of the person you sold your home, uh, some home to? 
That's how they interpret the golden rule. Not that it applies to everybody. Which is very funny. It's not only like their clientele is going to be white and more affluent, but not only that, but the realtors themselves are the whitest, most busybody people in the world. So it's like, oh, let's treat everyone like they're this. They've put themselves in that position, right? They've become the, 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 the controllers, the sort of racial controllers of American cities. Yeah. And they're looked to by local officials, by homeowners, by the people they've sold homes to, to enforce the system that the realtors created. And so they're expected to do this. So, yes, they're giving up the short-term sale and their fiduciary obligation. But what they're getting in return is the long-term goodwill of all the people in the neighborhood, or put it negatively, the thing that scares them to death is if they even show a home to a minority in that neighborhood, none of those people are going to use them as a broker when they sell a home. So what they're really protecting is their own long-term stake. Yeah. Instead of this highly competitive, hyper-competitive market of 1900s, they're basically staking out turfs with the neighbors in a subdivision as their future customers. So what they're really serving is their own long-term economic interest. And I think you look today, I mean, as far as like, you know, state housing politics, California Association of Realtors are one of the huge fish out there. They they throw a lot of weight. And you can even ask, like, hey, why are all these like salesmen like so big in pop? I mean, obviously there's money in it, but like part of it is like they're not even like, you know, they aren't even necessarily like the licensed field. It is just this private club. And it is because they, perhaps through very careful conservatism, have retained this stake. Yeah. Well, as I said, they had a way of organizing property owners, the people they had sold homes to, which gave them an enormous political power. Yeah. Um, and then they became very influential in the state legislature. And influence affected, you know, helped create you know, state licensing helped create zoning, helped create the planning laws in California um, to lots of ends. Segregation was a key part of this and what became by far the most controversial. And so maybe, maybe we should turn in some ways to what really made this property value axiom, which, by the way, was described by the leading appraiser in the country as, in his words, undesirable human elements depreciate property values. That yeah. was the theory. And I, I should tell you that it turned out this theory was, for very good reasons, entirely bogus. It was entirely a lie. And for the obvious reason that if you restrict where people can live, those people have to pay more. So an African-American would have to pay a speculator 20 or 30% more to have somebody stand in for them as a shield to try and buy a home. So prices, when people actually did move in a neighborhood, prices generally tended to go up rather than down. Every study that was eventually done starting in the late 1940s, showed this. So Luigi Laurenti, uh, an economist at UC Berkeley, he goes back to the authors of all these textbooks, every one of these, and says, you described this as a scientific fact, pure economics. Can I just see the data that you use? Can I see the study? Can I see the analysis? And it turned out there had never been a single analysis. This had all been stated as pure economic facts, objective, unprejudiced. It was entirely a lie, but it was a lie on which mid-century America and our modern suburbs were built because in the early in the Depression, it's the realtors who organize and are become the key sponsors of and help draft the legislation and help staff the Federal Housing Administration. 
which invents one of the most powerful tools in the history of housing in the world, yeah. which is the notion of the long-term fixed rate, fully amortizing, low down payment. Before this, if you bought a home like in the 1920s, you were buying a home with 50% down and a 50% mortgage with a balloon in five years, or if you were lucky, you went to a savings loan in 10 years. And when you had to roll it over, why were there so many foreclosures in the depression? Because people couldn't roll over their mortgages. It wasn't just that they lost their jobs. Mortgages was now due. Yeah. And so FHA was created and the realtors, so it was an incredibly powerful system. And for anybody building, like creating a new suburban development, if you had a commitment from FHA saying they'll provide 100% insurance on every home in your subdivision, you could go to a bank and get a construction loan for all your costs, sometimes more than your costs. So there's 100% financing available here, whereas nobody else can get financing at all in the middle of the depression. But the realtors impose a rule on this as part of the design of the program, which is such loans can only be for white buyers. That if you're making such a loan, creating a commitment in a new subdivision, it has to have a racial covenant, it has to be permanently protected. And it's the realtors in each city who do the first drafts of what become the redlining maps. You know, now everybody knows about redlining and redlining maps. These were not public. It's one of the things I'm fascinated me is I learned this. Everybody talks about these now as though this is common knowledge. It was not. These were kept highly secret. Nobody has ever seen, years later, the actual FHA marks. Yeah, uh, actually, I, yeah. I never realized that. Everyone talks about the HOLC maps, and I, always, I, I guess I was- oh, That was the Homeowners Loan Corporation that started a year before to deal with averting foreclosures. They created the maps. They didn't really use them yeah. to discriminate, but the maps then got adopted- and adapted by FHA, run by the the realtors, yeah. um, as a way of limiting where people could live. And basically it said, if you had an area which had any industry or any minorities or any threat of those within the next life of the mortgage, the next 25 years, you weren't going to make a loan. And of course, you weren't going to make a loan to somebody living in those areas. And you weren't going to live make a loan to a minority who might move into one of these areas, so basically almost no loans were made to minorities. Yeah, I, I never realized the HOLC maps, the ones we see, I didn't realize, I mean, I guess they used them. I didn't realize FHA produced maps and that those maps had more information and were the real ground truth. Uh, well, it sounds like- I, I don't know if they had more information. They were probably quite similar as far as as far as far we know, but none of the copies have survived. Yeah, they all, all, all disappeared. And after FHA in the late 1940s, you know, because of the court decision, Shelley versus Kramer and racial covenants, they said, we're not going to formally explicitly require these things anymore. But they shaped the way not only government agencies and the Veterans Administration, but banks, every savings and loan, every bank in the country followed whatever, because if the rules were considered as safe for FHA and the federal government, they could be safe doing it. So we created an entire system around this. So when you say Conspiracy? Yes. Not only was it a conspiracy, it was secret. And, and not only, like we said earlier, the government it was it was it was mad. Like you cannot be you know racially biased. But then in the mid thirties, in the in their most highest aim of state capacity, they were using essentially the justification of the realtors to say because this is based on property values, you can be effectively right. So the government was saying this is a matter of ri pure risk, pure economic risk. This is 
you know, official, this is economics, it has nothing to do with the government being about race. Trust the Underneath it, it all was, right, and every economist in the country, every white economist in the country, you know, those black economy, land economists have pointed out how absurd this was, they were ignored. And so their report in the big president's uh, conference that led to the creation of all these federal programs in the 30s, their report of 235 pages on the problems of Negro housing got reduced to a paragraph. Yeah. And, and it's, this, it's this kind of cycle of how does the ground truth like get established? And it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If people say, oh, sure, in the short term, you might see a bump in you know, value because there's this pent-up demand. But in the long term, if you have minorities, it will decline. And Actually, it wasn't even – that would be a subtle answer. It wasn't, it wasn't that subtle. It was simply – it automatically leads to decline because, sure. and because all they were measuring was what white buyers would would pay. Yeah, and so they took the same racialized view of housing to economics. So instead of looking at all supply and demand, they only looked at whites at white demand. Yeah. So it was yeah. the same notion of applying the same. We're going to see this in the idea in the ideology of American freedom. They're going to create a racialized set of boundaries around every American value, whether it was the common good, progress, stability, property values. They're now going to apply this post-World War II to the idea of American freedom. Yeah, I think in general, as you extrapolate onto the future, you can't just simply draw the lines of data. You are determining where you're going through the ideology you bring in. And it was an explicitly racialized ideology. Actually, we want to know. Uh, one of the most fascinating studies I came across was a few years ago, 2017, I think, by the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. They went back to all these redlining maps from like 385 cities because this was the same system was done everywhere. So the same outcomes were done everywhere. Um, they went back and they looked at every line on these maps, like between the red, the worst zone, and the yellow, the next worst, or the yellow and the green, the next zone. And they went back and they looked at every border across those there was just a street as opposed to a river or a railroad and they said what was the difference between the two sides of that boundary in 1934 and what's the difference between the two sides of that boundary now well not surprisingly you go back to when these were first created the boundaries were somewhat arbitrary there wasn't very much difference three block they looked three blocks on either side they looked six blocks there wasn't very much difference between those in property values in uh, home ownership, in building condition, or anything else. They come back 80 years later, 80 years. Yeah. And they find that the conditions on either side of those what were arbitrary boundaries are dramatically different in all those ways. They created these maps were predictors, but they were self-fulfilling prophecies. They created the future. Our rules create an emergent reality. Right. It said, if you're on this side of this boundary, nobody can get financing. Yeah. Well, lo and behold, on this side of the boundary, you can everybody can get 100% financing. And here you're in the middle of depression and nobody can get financing. Nobody can buy a house. They become rental. They become slums. You have to buy them on land contracts. The study of black homeowners in Chicago had to buy on land contracts so they couldn't get mortgages. Like in the 1950s alone, they lost $3 billion in property value. And so the household wealth gap that exists in this country 
was dramatically shaped by this. So African-Americans have 10% of the household wealth of whites because FHA created a system where it was cheaper to buy a house than to rent it with these long-term mortgages um, at low interest rates and low down payments. But that was available just to white buyers. So we created this racial, I mean, there are other forces in terms of employment discrimination, also voter discrimination, but they created this this enormous gap in household wealth. It goes without saying, there's a lot of content in the book. So I think like, let's, let's power up because we haven't even talked sure. about Prop 14 uh, yet. But you know, as we go on, you know, eventually the tide turns and there's a momentum towards, you could say in a certain way, fulfilling the legacy of the 14th Amendment, fulfilling integration. What do we see? We see uh, the courts clawing back uh, the capacity of the state to enact, you know, racist you know, powers through covenants and through other forms. And eventually this is moving into the, you know, fair housing acts. And, you know, this is by the late fifties in California, we have seen, and you, you mentioned this is in a lot of ways, a response to, we are not like the Nazis. We are not eugenicists. Yeah. We're beyond that. And what does that mean? Are we truly going to become a liberal integrated society? And it seems like we're moving full steam ahead. Yeah. So, you have to think if you're on the, it's 1939 in America and you're Herbert Nelson, the head of the Realtors National Association, the executive director, sitting in his office, you know, in downtown Chicago, looking at a system where FHA controls, you know, basically all new, and banks are using redlining maps and the Realtors control home sales and you have racial covenants and you have racial steering and you kick out anybody from the entire business who doesn't comply with your code of ethics, it's a powerful system that looks like nothing's going to stop it. And the decisions that get made that actually put it at risk aren't made in America. They're made in Tokyo and they're made in Berlin. They're made with the invasion of Pearl Harbor. So the U.S. winds up in a war fighting against racial imperialists in which the slogans of that war and every comment from every, you know, the president and the vice president, the head of the Republicans is all about this is a, a war for equal freedom against racist dictatorships, which is if you're trying to maintain racial segregation or you're in a southern or a white southern leader trying to maintain Jim Crow, this is dangerous territory, yeah. right? This is the first real threat to your power. And so in 1947, um, after an African-American soldier coming back from uh, three hours from, he's still in uniform, uh, three hours out of the service, um, has his eyes put out on a South Carolina uh, bus, I support um, And the president decides to appoint a president's committee on civil rights, the first one that's ever existed. To look at this issue, the first thing they recommend is that, is that, the federal government, for the first time, the U.S. Attorney General, intervene, take a position in a case between private parties on racial covenants brought by the NACP to the Supreme Court, Shelley versus Kramer, 1948. And the Supreme Court unanimously have to say three of the nine justices recused themselves, presumably because they have a home with racial covenants. They unanimously say enforcing covenants is, in fact, a um, that's a court action. That's government. That violates the 14th Amendment. Realtors respond in Los Angeles and California. They propose a constitutional amendment to overturn the 14th Amendment to create literally apartheid. And then their lawyers say, you know, you don't have to make this. You don't have to go through such a heavy process, an allowed process. 
you can do this quietly just by racial steering, by kicking out of the business, anybody does this, by lying to customers. You can do this all. And in fact, this is so effective that of 325,000 new homes sold in the Bay Area in the 1950s, 1950s, is after racial covenants can no longer be enforced, 50 are sold without regard to race yeah. out of 325,000. So you have an incredibly powerful system. And so the NAACP and other minorities who thought that the Supreme Court decision was going to allow integration, was going to allow them to, it was a headline in uh, African-American newspaper in Los Angeles, you know, Negroes can now live anywhere. Well, not as the realtors had anything to do with it. And so in response, they decide the only way to limit this is system of organized discrimination is to pass fair housing laws initially at the state and, fair, and local level that will ban private discrimination. And a series of these start getting passed in states around the country on the grounds of fairness. And one of them is passed in California in 1963, sponsored by Byron Rumford, who's a assemblyman and pharmacist from Berkeley called the Rumford Act. And it's in response to that, that the realtors have to find a new way of defending their racial system. Yeah, and, and we, this is where we introduce, you know, this idea, this this, this modern form of, of freedom. And it, I say at this point, it's when I, I think reading this history and time passes, it stops feeling so ancient and weird. And, you know, just like all these people who are effectively eugenicists, all these like just strange institutions. And you realize they're talking like people talk now and it's this idea it's oh fair housing yeah, sure i'm not racist but this is going too far people have certain you know rights to choose how they conduct themselves and it's like boy like that that's torn from the headlines yes how does this happen so fair housing gets passed in california a very modest law it covers only 25 percent of single family homes those with government insured mortgages and rental properties in more than five years. The maximum fine somebody might have to pay is $500. This is not like the most intrusive law one could imagine in the country. And in the first year or year and a half operation has like 82 complaints are filed, four involving homeowners. In response though, the California Real Estate Association organizes a massive campaign to put to petition, sign, get petitions signed to put on the ballot a state constitutional amendment that not only will overturn this fair housing law, but will prohibit, it's basically it says, neither the state nor any political subdivision, any city or county, can ever limit the absolute discretion of any residential property owner or their broker in selling or renting property. Never uses the word race, it never uses the word discrimination, but that's its purpose, is to protect, is to make discrimination constitutionally authorized forever with no hope of ever changing. That's that's the amendment that they put on the ballot. And, and they roll it out at the same time as kind of saying it represents the property owner's bill of rights or the, the, the what was yeah, it? The property owner's bill of rights. So. Yeah. And j just, a, just a sideline is like, it's worth mentioning too, at this point for as bad as it is for minorities trying to obtain property in real terms, as you say here, it is worse for, is worse for renters. Renters in... Yes in actual like basically obligations for paying premiums and you know and there's yeah. a chance you get cash in the barrel head and get a place you can always use a private broker you know in, in if things work yeah. out but you know it's a lot harder to police an ongoing transaction between a possibly racist uh you know 
yeah. owner and, and a tenant. And, yeah, we don't even have to use the words racist. This is just a system yeah. that everybody yeah. adopted and and was controlled and managed. So, but think about the realtor's political problem at this point. It's 1963 and 1964. Martin Luther King has spoken to Marshall Washington. The Civil Rights Act is being passed by Congress with 80% support by Republican congressmen, um, higher percentage among Democratic Um, And most Californians say they're all in favor. You have Pat Brown, popular elected two-term governor who's beat Richard Nixon in his re-election campaign with his highest priority being fair house. You have a liberal, you know, legislature. You have every church group, every archbishop, um, not every church group, some small evangelical churches, but basically all those companies, um, business leaders, civic leaders, almost all say, this is outrageous. You know, this is like, this is like not even, no state, not Mississippi or Alabama has a constitution which says discrimination must permanently be authorized. And you talk about the mandate here, you have the radical Republican, radical right wing at the point which is like running on, you know, small government and anti-union and they're like they're demolished running on an anti-union pattern was suicide and it right. seems like okay you know this this new right. form of the of the great society is in f- like full bloom so this proposition is on the california ballot at the same time lyndon johnson is leading the ballot and he's going to win by the largest landslide still in our american history almost 60 to 40 percent so how do the realtors justify a proposition whose purpose is to permanently authorize discrimination at the height of support for American liberalism and civil rights. How do you do that? And their answer is, this is Spike Wilson, who's a realtor from Fresno, president of the local Kiwanis Club, and he had been a Sacramento news editor and a brilliant propagandist. He sits down and he pens this property owner's bill of rights that they publish in newspapers throughout California and nationally with a picture of a patriot uh, you know, from 1776, the Patriot Act. And what they do is they talk about colorblind, they invent the language of colorblind freedom. So this has a couple of elements. The most important thing they're trying to do is to show that they aren't racist, that this isn't about race at all. And so Wilson has the realtors nationally put together a propaganda kit. It's called a forced housing. They called fair housing forced housing. So in the era of equal time, Anytime a newspaper had to refer to fair housing, they also had to refer to forced housing. Like they never talked about, you know, zoning is forced zoning or forced subdivision planning, but forced housing. This kit is an inch and a half thick and it has scripts, five minute scripts, 10 minute scripts, 12 minute scripts, questions and answers for realtors, in which realtors are told never speak about race, only about freedom. And how do they define freedom? So they decide. They're going to create an idea of freedom that's the exact opposite of Martin Luther King's. What did they do? First, they say, we're in favor of equal rights for all. Well, how could a system of organized discrimination be in favor of equal rights for all? Because we're in favor of the same right for white owners and for black owners, the right to discriminate. That's the only right that's involved. But by saying we're involved in the same right for all, we are the ones, realtors say, who are in favor of equal rights, protecting the property rights of all. Am I anti-Negro? Wilson says, by God, I am not. I am their greatest champion. So they create this language. And how do you do it? You ta- And this is, becomes a key and a key to what we see today. You take a single narrow right, the right, something, a right nobody had ever talked about in the last two centuries, 
right? And a right that realtors had spent 50 years with racial covenants violent and owners right to decide who to sell a house to. And you make that an absolute and say, that's American freedom itself. That's, that's what American freedom means is this right. It wasn't in the Bill of Rights. It wasn't in the Constitution. That's because it was so fundamental. It was every. It was based on the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. We're all based on that. You take this narrow right. You never talk about other rights. You don't talk about the other half of real estate being able to buy a house or being able to rent a house. You only take this narrow right and you call that American freedom itself. And you say you're in favor of equal rights. And they think, link this. This is sort of the key to individual freedom. And they say, this is really the dictates of, they talk about the dictates of conscience and they tie it to freedom of religion because they're trying to make it seem something sacred, that this is just your individual choice, your individual freedom. And so effective is this, this combination, and, and they're making freedom into a zero sum, basically, you know, that unlike Martin Luther King is saying that freedom for all Americans depends on freedom for every American. That's the fundamental idea of shared freedom. That's the heart of his quoting Lincoln, the heart of the March on Washington. And they're saying, no, first of all, freedom is simply this right to decide who you want to sell a house to and to discriminate. It doesn't mean being able to buy a house. And so therefore being able to buy a house is a privilege. It's, it's a really weird thing. Cause like of all things, like, I go, who do you care who you sell to? You don't even live there anymore. You know, like it's such a weird, like it's so incredible. You can fixate on that and and it was successful. Well, well, actually there's a, the grandfather of current Supreme Court Justice uh, Gorsuch, his grandfather, John Gorsuch is a real, is a, was a lawyer for the Colorado realtors who went to the Colorado Supreme Court in 1962. And he he admits, he says, look, the the right of a seller, I, I, I admit that a seller has very little interest in what happens to his property by putting exactly. it up for sale. Right. It's like, I want money. I want cash. I want dollars. I don't want this house. He says, but what it really does is this idea of freedom entitles such a person and families like him to live in an all white neighborhood, a neighborhood of people with whom he choose. So this idea of individual freedom is really do it's called freedom of choice that's what they put on the billboards around Los, on freeways around los angeles freedom of choice everybody's in favor of freedom of choice you know there was later a poll among americans in which people were asked to rank their highest values freedom of choice gets like 76 percent. belief in god gets like 70 yep. percent. okay so freedom of choice there's nothing better to argue for and by saying we're not against first of all what minorities want is a privilege a privilege of not being discriminated against. What we're in favor of is freedom for everybody. Yeah, And this is so powerful because it says to everyone, just like you'll say, I'm in favor of freedom of speech, even for somebody I disagree with. What they're saying to, to voters in California is that to be in favor of Proposition 14, to authorize permanently discrimination in the state, doesn't mean that you're prejudiced whatsoever. It means that you believe in individual freedom. So powerful is this line that 65% of voters support it on the same ballot as Lyndon Johnson crushes Barry Goldwater, 75% of white voters, 82% of white union voters. The heart of the Democratic FDR coalition gets split. Yeah. And the beneficiary of this ultimately comes wrong right. So, and I think you talk about this point, like the freedom to choose who you sell to is ultimately a fig leaf over freedom of association of controlling your own community, 
which even on its own case, like the fig leaf, but people still love and admire freedom of association. And actually, I really like this book is is really interesting to me, not only because, you know, realtors are always kind of a bet noir to me, but also the freedom of association. I, I, I think in the last couple of years, I've like, I think it was like Simone Weil writing about this makes you realize it's like, we like it is taken for granted. Freedom of association is a good thing, but is it? Well, they, it's a, freedom of association was used as a line starting in the late forties by realtors, um, you know, trying to maintain racial covenants, saying everybody, every, and it was an equal right again. Every race has the right to, you know, live with those who it wants to live, or it's really actually a right to exclude. They couldn't use that directly in Proposition fourteen because it's a purely racial group right, right? Yeah. They needed something else. And that's why they turned to freedom of choice. But behind freedom of choice lay this underlying idea. They didn't use freedom of association for two reasons. It had been used in all these campaigns against unions um, for right to work laws. And it was so associated with Southern segregationists defending Jim Crow and you know children being attacked by police dogs in Birmingham that realtors in California, they're going to win in California. And they and by creating a message that can win 75% of the white vote, they've created a language of freedom that can be used anywhere in the country. That's its key message to conservatives. Here's a language that can then get adopted on any issue. And the reason it becomes so successful, I mean, why is this still around? Why is this so successful? Why are we dealing with this today? Because it solves a couple of fundamental structural long-term problems. It's not really the Ronald Reagan running for governance adopts the language of uh, freedom of choice and says if an individual wants to discriminate in selling or renting his house, it's his right to do so. It's not merely Reagan's own career that's involved, but it's a language. And what it does is it solves three fundamental problems. Conservatives at the time, and conservatives today, are divided between two fundamentally groups with very different sets of values libertarians, government shouldn't restrict anything, and social conservatives wanting school prayer, wanting Sunday laws, to, you know, wanting government limiting what people can do. This language uses the language of libertarianism to stand for and to solve for what would seem like it's seeming opposite community conformity. Yeah. That's what you see in abortion today. Right, an absolute right of the fetus, sort of absolute individual freedom. It can't be limited by any other's rights, including the woman, um, to stand for a community conformity of how a community should be that no abortion should be allowed. You see this with gun rights. You see this with every issue, or with uh, contraception for employers, with the Masterpiece Baker uh, case. So it's this, you take a narrow right, you elevate it, you say that government has no right to balance the rights of others. Clearly, when you limit sellers' right to sell, you are limiting some kind of freedom. But freedom, Byron Rumford said, freedom means it requires balancing the rights of all. That's government's role. Declaration of Independence is government is created to secure these rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This view says, no, no, no. Government is the enemy. Any government that will try and limit this is our enemy. This creates a transcendental view of American politics. It's a view that goes beyond economic self-interest. And so, you know, lots of liberals and progressives say, why don't working class Americans all vote, you know, for Trump or right-wing things that are against their own or the Koch brothers' interests? Why are they voting against their own economic? Because they're defending 
and even in the case with vaccines and masks, they're defending with their lives this idea of freedom as an absolute with no right of government to limit it. That's what you see in vaccines and masks today because this became the unifying language of the Republican Party that became an, a new, something that didn't exist, a new national conservative party that made this idea of freedom its centerpiece. It's, it, it connects all these separate issues with a single unifying message. And so you have Republican politicians today who have no choice but to be against vaccine and mask mandates. And and I think it's a beautiful synthesis insofar as, yeah, how do you get you know, busy buddy, you know, Puritan types with the kind of small government types. And it's like, okay, we all agree we love the small government, but when you are able to ride the, you know, basically the state capacity is still being used to enforce these contracts, which are built upon the history of busy buddies and racists and, you know, ghouls a hundred years ago, people still defend, oh, I'm not doing anything untoward i'm just defending the natural state of zoning and property rights as it exists today it's it's one thing you say too it is uh it is the vision of freedom without a commons everything is privatized and there is no society it is simply it is simply the perpetuation of this you know natural state of inequality and that's somehow you know, you know. The idea that freedom belongs to some people more than others. Yes. And freedom, I define this at the end in terms of how can one respond to this? It's, you have to respond to it not by, I mean, basically conservatives have monopolized ever since the 1960s the language of freedom. So last year in the election, Republicans can describe themselves as the only freedom-loving Americans. And sort of the left has largely left the language of freedom to conservatives. And my argument is that if you don't agree with this idea of freedom and its implications on issue after issue, it's important to challenge it by redefining what freedom means by saying, you're talking about exclusive freedom. We mean inclusive freedom. Exclusive freedom has certain elements to it, a right to exclude, a right to discriminate, uh, and absolute rights. But absolute rights, by definition, mean they're sacrificing somebody else's rights. That's what absolute rights means. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we hear in the discourse today. And I mean, this is a thread going through this too. I mean, this is kind of, you know, my thesis more than anything said explicitly, but there is the seeds of the democratic coalition of the white working class union types when they enter into the logic of home ownership and the you know kind of the 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 kind of material interest that happened with home ownership this plants seeds that actually eventually blow up the egalitarian unifying threads of of the society that this attempts to create and and this knows like the real estate you know interests they fight public housing they fight you know they just they want an ownership society because they they right. want nothing less than something where everything's privatized Right. And they fight against fair housing, which finally gets passed a couple of days after Martin Luther King's assassination in 1968, which is weakened dramatically, doesn't have an enforcement mechanism for many years, and still today underfunded and so forth, because congressmen across the board are aware of these results in California and similar referendums that were held elsewhere. And they know the power of this idea of freedom, so they limit what can be done in fair housing. And it would take strong government action to overturn 
to overcome the long-term effects of all the systems realtors put in place. Separate suburban governments, single-family zoning, that was first created in Berkeley in 1916 to support racial covenants. All these forces, discrimination that still continues informally, you know, uh, African-Americans, you know, with the same credit score, it turned down twice as much for home loans as, as whites. It would take strong government action to overcome these forces, but it's precisely strong government action that this idea of freedom and its power to re-split the American landscape um, has created. Yeah, I think a good se- like a good sequel for like setting your bookshelf after this, uh, the recent uh, race for profit, uh, you know, is is an excellent you know look at the Nixon era of this kind of new version of the right wing and how they failed to enact uh, you know fair housing. And it is a way of dealing with exclusionary suburbs, not doing enough for affirmatively furthering fair housing. And these same affir- affirm- affirmatively furthering fair housing uh, battles are still happening right now. This is an active fight. Right. The, the one other thing we haven't touched on, if we have one minute, let me just... Uh, we have a few minutes. Okay. No, no real okay. rush here. The one thing I haven't talked about is really how this played into the landscape of American politics. So it's important to go back. How do we wind up with our two parties where they are today? You go back to 1947, the same President's Committee on Civil Rights um, that's tackling Southern segregation and racial covenants. In response to this, a Southern uh, banking lawyer named Charles Wallace Collins, who's like senior counsel to Bank of America, um, former controller, system controller of the currency, Ardent Southern Alabama, ardent Southerner, ardent racist. He says, we're going to lose Jim Crow because Southern whites are all strong supporters of the New Deal. And the Democrats are going to compete with Republicans for votes of big city blacks. And they're going to do away ultimately. And yes, we have the filibuster. Today we have, you know, um, a one party system. We don't allow blacks to vote but it's gonna eventually erode our power. And his proposal makes a very specific proposal that Southern whites to defend Jim Crow should you leave the National Democratic Party and join in what would effectively be a new National Conservative Party with conservative Republicans from the Midwest and the North, not all Republicans, but only those who agree that in return for Southern support against the New Deal and against government regulation of business, they'll be for federal government having a hands-off view of civil rights. This is his notion. This leads to Strom Thurmond running for president in 1948, comes labeled as the Dixiecrat revolt. By the mid-1960s, such a party, something that doesn't exist in America, a national conservative party, is possible when Goldwater wins, comes out against the Civil Rights Act, and wins five southern states. And Strom Thurmond, the southern leader, South Carolina, joins the Republican Party. So this realignment of the two parties is now possible. But it's not possible if there isn't a common ideology that can be used both north and south for this party. The language of colorblind freedom that the realtors had to invent under necessity to win in California becomes the language of this party. And this party embraces the idea of freedom that the realtors views because it's so effective, Ronald Reagan does. And so you wind up having a party whose organizing principle 
is this idea of freedom with all these very disparate movements on abortion, on gun rights, um, you name it, they could be fragmented, but they're all unified by the same message of freedom. And so you wind up, therefore, with anybody aspiring to lead such a party today by the natural dynamics of what an of what's happened to it. So different the Republican Party, in which 80% of the congressmen voted for the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, and it wasn't very different than Democrats in their view on civil rights. You wind up with a party where, like on masks and, and vaccines, you know, Abbott in Texas is being, is taking all his views against school mandates, you know, mask mandates, because he's being challenged from the right because of his own mandates a year ago. And DeSantis, you know, the left is taking away your freedom, violates the most basic conservative principles of local control of schools and of, you know, businesses being able to deal with their customers and their employees that they want. And Trump advised, you know, a year ago, as it turns out in Michael Wolf's new book, to be in favor of, you know, masks and so forth, says it would be off brand. Yeah. For yeah. this party to go against this idea of freedom would be off brand. And that's why it's being... That's why and it's helped shift the country to the right for 50 years, unless one figures out a language, to, unless one recognizes and figures out a language to oppose. Yeah, I think that's part of it, too, at least in my, in my mind. For the last 50 years, we have seen the left in decline largely because they effectively agree with the framing the right wing puts down of, you know, I think that the like the kind of moderate you know, increasingly suburban Democrat in a lot of ways. There's a big coalition, but a big part of it is people. It's like, oh, yeah, let's just kind of continue. Let's, you know, just freedom of choice and, and so on, as opposed to the positive vision of something which is like, we do live in a society. We need to live together. I think California being an example, we're in a, effectively one party state along the coast, but you still see the same forms of exclusionary you know, behavior. And this is, this is subsumed. I mean, I think the failure, I, when you read the kind of history in like the you know, 50s and 60s, you see this arc of truly reaching a society of people with real freedom and how they live their lives. And this was effectively scuttled by the fact we didn't pursue, you know, busing to the end. We didn't pursue like du jour, uh, du jour, racism through uh, code such as James V. Valtiera didn't get pursued as well. And this is still a legacy that has been unfulfilled. And I, I mean, perhaps it's like my hammer. I, I left urbanism of way of how we try to unify equitable cities where people live and thrive is the answer to, I think, the increasingly you know, ruralist, doomist death cult of, of the right wing. And, you know, but like, and it kind of gives you a path, like one way you can, can reach it. That's you know, my view yeah. to some extent. Well, I mean, in some ways we can view this idea of freedom, the conservative idea, is sort of, in it's a resistance. It's a defense against government trying to balance the rights of everybody by saying that's taking away your freedom, by defining freedom as a zero sum, as like your private property with your little picket fence around it, instead of freedom belonging to the country as a whole to protect the interests of everybody. That's why the vaccine mass mandate in many ways exposes precisely this issue. It's this idea that there is no commons because it's a belief among conservatives that they're the last defenders of a past image of a community. Yeah. That this language of libertarianism 
is intended to impose or maintain that past community conformity. That's, I think, the heart of what's going on. And and to draw, I was I was getting kind of like flash forwards while reading this is like what like one kind of like final thought, like it is a story of Sacramento passing bills at the last moment, you know, and there's like this dramatic. Uh, you know, midnight mm-hmm. voting, which actually essentially happened with a real bill that failed at right at midnight a year ago, uh, and then a backlash. And you know, I am like, it, it's extremely notable in my mind. There right now is stirring Redondo Beach. the The local control movement is trying to pass a an amendment, and it is strikingly similar to the framing and ideology of the Prop 14 movement. Very interesting. And I'd say if you Very want to understand what's going on now, you could do a lot better than to uh, try to understand understand the past. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think we have a lot of stuff that left un, un, undug through. It is it is a large book. But one more time, it is uh, Freedom to Discriminate uh, by Haiti Books. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you so much for being here, Gene. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. We have been talking to Gene Slater about his new book, Freedom to Discriminate, How Realtors Conspired to Segregate Housing and Divide America, out by Heyday Books. You can find this episode and all previous episodes of the radio show and podcast at the website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Keza Shu, Stanford. <laughs>